0: Welcome to Oncofarm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I am a professor of pharmacy practice here at the Sponsored sponsor, Oncofarm, ETSU's Bill Gann College of Pharmacy. It is the second day of December, 2021. It's been a while. Got a lot of updates to get through. Got the got all the all my files recovered. It's feeling good. Uh, all right, let's get into it. Uh, so, uh, ASH's um, Annual Meeting, American Society of Hematology Annual Meeting coming up. Uh, I think next weekend, early December. Uh, well, the abstracts are out and have been out for a while. And there's one I want to I want to pass along now. There's one of, one of the big sessions gonna be about um, uh, the Polarix trial, which is basically archop versus R-CHOP, but substituting um, polatuzumab vedotin for uh, for Vincristine. Um Kind of want to see what people uh, tweet out the the curves of that to see what it looks like. There's the top-line numbers are no overall survival benefit. So it doesn't like ARCHOP's going to be taken down anytime soon. ARCHOP's uh, still the king, looks like. Uh, but there is one, I think, very interesting uh, abstract to talk about early uh, from an oncology pharmacy perspective. That's abstract 631-desatinib dosing. Um, Low-dose-desatinib 50 milligrams versus 100 milligrams in newly diagnosed CML patients. Uh, a propensity score analysis. Um, so this is from MD Anderson, where apparently... They have been putting some folks on desatinib 50 milligrams. Um, uh, Sandros is 100 milligrams uh, of desatinib. So, so what they did is they looked at the people who had had desatinib 50 and the people who had desatinib 100 uh, going back many years. Uh, and they had 83 who received desatinib 50 milligrams and 150 received desatinib 100. Uh, those baseline demographics look reasonably well matched then they did a propensity scoring matching and then those numbers look very very similar 77 in each group Um, they had all been followed for at least four years uh, in the 50 milligram group and uh, up to 131 months in the 100 milligram group so something happened where they decided we're gonna try and do 50 milligrams uh, you know four or five years ago These folks were relatively young, median age of 47, uh, and almost all had, or did not have high risk uh, by the Sokol score. So there's only like 1% that had high risk, I think in the 100 milligram group. Um, So the the primary outcome here was uh, looking at, uh, I think four year failure free survival, which was 89%, which is higher in the 50 milligram group than 77% in the 100 milligram group, p-value 0.041. Uh, transformation-free survival, meaning you're not transforming to or Blast phase, 100% in either arm. Uh, Event-free survival was similar, uh, 95% versus 92%, numerically higher in the lower dose. Uh, Overall survival, 97% versus 96%, not significant. Uh, 12-month in our major molecular response was 82% versus 75%, statistically not significant, numerically favoring 50 milligrams. So from an efficacy standpoint, There certainly is not a signal that 50 milligrams is inferior to 100 milligrams. Um, There was lower prolural fusions in the lower dose group, as you might expect, 6% versus 21%. That was statistically significant. And there's precedent for this. So there was a study uh, by uh, Kentarjan's group from MD Anderson and Blood in 2009, looking at um, accelerated phase CML, who were refractory or intolerant to, to imatinib, basically. Uh, and they, they randomized them as a phase three study, either 70 milligrams of dasatinib twice daily or 140 daily. And 140 daily basically had half the risk of pleural 20% versus 39% if you did 70 BID. And that was significant. So there is some precedent for, uh, you know, figuring out uh, that uh, you can uh, modify the dasatinib dosing to decrease the risk of polar fusion. Um There's also some precedent that... You Know we maybe we don't have the ideal dose of these TKIs figured out when they first come out. So, nilotinib, when it was first approved, uh, and folks relapsed, relapsed refractory to uh, or refractory intolerant to imatinib, the dose was 400 BID of nilotinib uh, until the big study came out of nilotinib in the first line setting where they did, I think, 300 BID versus 400 BID versus imatinib, and 300 BID was just as good as 400 BID. And this takes us back to kind of how phase one studies are done in oncology. Traditionally, for our cytotoxic agents, you, you, you give them a, a low dose to three patients. If there's no more than you know one dose limiting toxicity, you, you keep, you add three more at a higher dose. And you, the goal is to find the highest dose we can give that, uh, that is safe, basically, all right? The highest dose we can give that doesn't cause unacceptable toxicity so they're dose finding so the premise in oncology all along has been let's give the most toxic dose we can give that's not too toxic uh, and that obviously doesn't apply to tyrosine kinase inhibitors where we now we're looking at things like receptor occupancy and signaling inhibition things like that but uh, i think some of that old mindset is let's give the you know the highest dose that people can tolerate instead of what's the lowest dose that we need for for effectiveness and maybe that's what we're seeing here is that 50 milligrams is just as good as 100? I don't have an explanation for why 50 might be better. This, this could just be noise, right? I don't know if this is a true efficacy signal. Uh, I'd like to see the paper. Uh, one thing, you know, is there some like fancy receptor kin- kinetics at, at a lower dose? Or does the higher dose upregulate some other pathway? Um, or is is the higher dose, this seems the most plausible to me as a pharmacist, is the higher dose causing more toxicity that causes treatment delays uh, and therefore, that's may, why it may not work. But that, that's not in the abstract. I would like to see that. Um, it's a small study, right? Fewer than 100 people on satinib 50. Uh, so I, I don't know that for me, this becomes the standard of care to do with just less than 100 patients from a single center that's very good at treating leukemia. There also may be, um, you know, you're looking at, at people from a, a, a much more recently getting the 50 milligrams versus in the older Cohort gain hundred milligrams, so there may be some timing biases here somehow. Um, I, I will say this: it makes me feel good if somebody's on desaten and they have a plurifusion to to let that not to to rechallenge them on fifty milligrams and to reduce the dose. That does make me feel good uh, about that. Also makes me feel good if somebody's on hundred milligrams of dasatinib, uh, and they really can't stop their PPI. That even with desatinib 100 on a ppi or an h2 blocker is probably going to still be uh okay with 50 milligrams i know the pi has you know the one dose study of decreased absorption both with desatinib and nilotinib but we do have some clinical data from retrospective studies at least with nilotinib and ppi suggesting that there is not uh a a deterrence to uh to uh to mmr outcomes in those folks with cml uh so good news it's a dosing study right and doses matter so uh, would love to see uh, something, something larger. You know, four years is a pretty good follow-up for, for CML as well. And I'm sure they'll publish even longer follow-up down the road here. Okay, the next one I want to talk about is the Dream DreamSec, like sequence, DreamSeq study. Uh, and this was, uh, this was presented at ASCO's November Plenary Series, which I didn't know was a thing until one of the doctors on rounds mentioned this. Um, this is looking at sequencing immune checkpoint inhibitors followed by BRAF T-Guys in those who are BRAF mutated with metastatic melanoma versus the reverse. So I really like these studies that look at sequencing and we know patients with these metastatic diseases are going to get multiple lines of treatment. Uh, so let's go back uh, in time to uh, to checkmate 076. You know it's an old study. If, it, if The checkmate begins with a zero or the keynote begins with a zero instead of like a, a three or a five. So so checkmate 067... Um, was looking at metastatic melanoma treatment, uh, BRAF wild type, and BRAF mutant. This isn't like non-small cell lung cancer. If you have the mutation, uh, like BRAF mutated patients do well. They do even better with, uh, you know, they, they do really well with immune checkpoint inhibitors, okay? So this was looking at nivolumab and ipilimumab, and the IPI is just for four doses, or just nivolumab or just ipilimumab. And we have five year overall survival data presented two or three years ago in the New England Journal of Medicine. And the numbers are like this, uh, Nippy Evo, 52% five-year overall survival, which is better than Nevo alone, 49%, although, or 44%, although that's not statistically significant, that 52 versus uh, 44, not statistically significant, um, but they're both statistically significantly better than single agent Ippy at 26%. Now, the Nevo-Ippi combo was obviously more toxic, so you had a regimen that was more toxic that trended towards a better overall survival. So I think most people are using just single-agent NEVO uh, when they're treating folks with immunotherapy. Uh, and this included all patients uh, I, I'll, uh, I need to mention, uh, but the data were, were similar uh, with regards to numerically uh, better efficacy with Nevi, NEVO and IPI combo versus NEVO alone whether they be BRAF type or BRAF mutant. okay? So most of you probably are seeing patients If they have metastatic melanoma, they're gonna be getting NEVO. Now there is a question, should you do immune checkpoint inhibitors or TKIs in people that have uh, metastatic melanoma? There is some, I think, conventional wisdom that if you are very symptomatic and have a heavy disease burden, it makes more sense to use the TKIs first because you'll have a, a quicker response. Patients will feel better faster. Um, and, and that makes sense, right? I, I remember the, when we first learned of this, even before we had the MEK inhibitors, uh, we sent a patient to a, a, a referral center, a center who is, uh, had a, a physician there who was a lead author on one of the early vimorafenib studies. And they suggested doing, you know, three months of TKI, then immune, then, uh, and then ipilimumab back then. Um, and then, uh, after that, going back to the, the TKI, which made scientific sense to me. Anyway, so here we are to dream sequence, which is looking at nevo followed by Dibrafenib, tremetnib, or the reverse sequence. Um, 130 patients in each arm. Now, this is what's interesting. The two-year overall survival was, was much higher in the nevo group if they got it first. 72% versus 52%. It's a delta of 20% number to treat of five. That's, that's pretty significant. you got to treat five people first with Nevo-Ipi, uh, followed by Dibrafenib, Tremetinib to, to keep one extra person alive um, two years later. So, so pretty profound, you know, magnitude of benefit, I would say. The caveat, of course, is that most people aren't using Nevo Ipi Frontline. They're using Nevolium Abalone. So the question of that, you know, you want to know, and, and this is what uh, one of the, the smart guys in the ASCO Post said, is this probably doesn't change practice if you're already doing Nevo up front. Uh, I think it was Flaherty who said that. But if you were somebody like like let's say I have metastatic melanoma and I can see the data and I can see the, you know, numerically higher overall survival with Nevo-Ipi and I'm young, I think I might be willing to tolerate that higher dose toxicity or that higher toxicity and then do a BRAF and mec TKI. Um, so it's, it's certainly interesting. The other thing that I want to point out about this study um, is I have not seen the curves. Oh, I did, I did find the curve on Twitter. It's not in the abstract. But they do a nice job in the abstract describing quote a bi- the biphasic curves and what that means is the curves cross. So initially, um, you know, for the first ten months in the overall survival curve, the BRAF group is doing better. Um, and immunotherapy takes longer to work. Uh, that's true. Uh, and then at ten months, the curves cross, and uh, and then the immunotherapy first arm. Uh, does much better uh, for longer than the TKI first arm. And, and the curves also cross for pro- progression-free survival, but at six months. Um, so, uh, you know, I, if you're doing, you know, Nevo-Ipi in patients with metastatic melanoma, this would strongly suggest you need to do it first in those that are BRAF mutated and then follow that with the TKIs. Uh, if you're not doing Nevo-Ipi first and just Nevo, um, you know, does that mean that you should give Nevo first followed by b guy I think some would make that assumption, but it is an assumption. And you know the saying that your high school basketball coach wrote on the board, if you assume. You make a you-know-what out of you and me. And you and me. So uh, I think a really interesting study, you know, it's a pretty big magnitude benefit for two-year overall survival um, for, for metastatic melanoma. All right. Uh, the, the next study I want to talk about, and this is the last study we'll talk about before uh, just going through some random updates, is RxPonder just published uh, uh, yesterday in the New England Journal of Medicine. So this is uh, a 21-gene assay. This is Oncotype DX uh, to inform uh, chemotherapy benefit in node-positive breast cancer. And you're like, well, we, we're giving chemo to people that are node-positive, right? We, sh- we should be. Uh, that's what we learned from, from the very first, uh, you know, adjuvant chemotherapy study to show benefit. in Breast cancer CMF is that almost all the benefit were in node positive patients. But with the Oncotype Gen, uh, Oncotype DX score, um, what we know is those folks that have the low risk, so a score of 25 or less, there's a question. Maybe they don't need uh, they don't need chemo. So just to back up for a minute, there was uh, I think two years ago Taylor RX. Uh, was published. Uh, yeah, so it's 19 in New England Journal of Medicine. And this looked at no negative folks with low risk score uh, of um, a recurrence score of 11, um, what was it? I think it was less than 25. It was 11 to 25. And they were randomized to either endocrine therapy alone or chemo plus endocrine therapy. And there was no difference in overall survival or um, I think it was invasive disease-free survival probably. Yeah, recurrence uh, in those folks. However, In women under the age of 50, um, adjuvant chemo did improve outcomes if your recurrence score was 16 to 25, okay? That was in node negative, okay? So even in those who were node negative, we still wanted to give chemo to some of those folks that were 16 to 25 on the recurrence score. These are node positive patients, and the question is, do they all need chemo? So there's about 5,000 women uh, with recurrence scores of 0 to 25 randomized to either chemo and in endocrine therapy or just endocrine therapy. I will mention that like 15% of the folks assigned to chemo did not go on to get chemo. They refused chemo. They didn't want chemo. Um, all, these are all hormone positive, of course, and HER2 unamplified, okay, similar to the, the Taylor Rx design. The five year invasive disease free survival is similar between both groups 91.9% versus 91.3%. Numerically higher in the endocrine arm, but not statistically significant. Most of the women in the study were postmenopausal. And if my wife, who is premenopausal, had node-positive breast cancer, I would be hesitant to have enrolled her, uh, or to 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 have her enroll on a study where she may not get chemo if she's premenopausal and node-positive. Uh, so I think it's like two-thirds postmenopausal, one-third premenopausal. In the premenopausal group, there was inferior outcomes in those who did not get chemotherapy. So the five-year invasive disease-free survival. And the premenopausal woman was 89% with endocrine alone, most of them tamoxifen, and then 93.9%, uh, so almost 5% improvement relative in invasive disease for survival. If they got chemo plus endocrine therapy. That hazard ratio is 0.6, comfortable 0.43 to 0.8. So pretty pretty big impact there. Uh, so the, the take-home here is that maybe uh, your postmenopausal women, so those that are probably older, you know, above 50, if they're node positive, you might not need to give them them chemo, um, and and certainly is, is reassuring, uh, you know. When you have, uh, you know, I've seen these these women in the clinic who are uh, older, reasonably fit, right? So maybe an ECOG one uh, 60 some, seventy some year old uh, woman who's got node positive. These were in one two, so so not like four plus nodes, you know, one two or three node positive. Um, and you know, like yeah I, you know i don't want to i don't want to risk disease recurrence but i don't want to risk the toxicity of chemo Patients are reluctant this gives you some some guidance that if that recurrence score is low risk less than 25 and they're postmenopausal you may be able to, to avoid chemotherapy in those patients all right real quickly got to run through some fda updates uh, on 11-17th, the FDA approved uh, adjuvant pembrolizumab for for intermediate high-risk renal cell carcinoma. This was Keynote 564, discussed on the pod in the past. Disease-free survival was the outcome, not overall survival. Uh, they also included M1 disease, so metastatic disease that had been resected as adjuvant treatment, which is getting a little loose with the lingo. Um... Uh, so I won't talk any more about that since it's been covered on the pod. 11.23, there's a new drug, NAB Sirolimus, nanoparticle albumin-bound Sirolimus. It is approved for advanced, unresectable, or metastatic perivascular epitheloid tumor, which is new to me. Uh, I'm not going to talk a lot about this. We have Tem Sirolimus, which is IV. That's active metabolite is Sirolimus. We have oral Sirolimus. Uh, I don't see a benefit of a more expensive Sirolimus. Um, 11.29... There is an image, and, and I almost debated not to cover this because it's it's not a drug to treat cancer, but it's a drug to help identify cancer. And this is an, an imaging agent for ovarian cancer called, uh, I think I'm going to butcher this, uh, patholocinine, Uh This is a fluorescent agent that targets the folate receptor, which apparently is upregulated in ovarian cancer cells, probably upregulated in lots of other cells too. Uh, and this is helpful for, for surgeons to be able to see uh, what may need to be resected uh, and what may not be. Although there is a warning precaution statement about the risk of misinterpretation that, that non-malignant tissue may light up and malignant tissue um, might not light up, which seems like it's saying it doesn't work. And I'm not gonna get into the, the evidence of the studies, things like that. One thing that may be worth knowing is that because this drug does target the folate receptor, you need to avoid, patients should avoid folate, folic acid, folate supplements, multivitamins, things like that for two days prior to receiving uh, this drug. The brand name is Cytolux. Uh, And then finally, uh, yesterday on December 1st, the FDA approved uh, Darzalex Fastpro. That's the Daritumab hyaluronidase for sub-Q injection with carfilzomib and dex, that trio uh, for relapsed refractory myeloma, sorry, multiple myeloma uh, after one or three prior lines of treatment. Uh, Nothing necessarily may be new there except for the fact that Um, it's the sub-Q dare team app they got an FD approval that is what I have for today Uh, you know obviously more to come next week Um, I've enjoyed seeing folks share their their Spotify wrapped folks that are fans of the podcast enjoy seeing that Uh, thank you for listening Um, you can follow me on Twitter at FarmDeetNib and follow the podcast on both Twitter and Instagram at OncoFarmPod and until I talk to you again remember doses matter Thank mm-hmm. you.